using the coma method as a tool to help understand scripture better. And we are still dealing with context. So C and coma, context. And last week, we learned about how to study the literary text of scripture. And this week, we're going to learn how to study and understand scripture, the scripture's historical and cultural context. Now, if you know anything about me, I love history. I love, love, love history. For you, history class would have been a bore. For me, it would have been a party. I remember when I was at State, I was actually literally going to forego my spring graduation and graduate in December because I wanted to take a history class uh, on uh, military history. But my father was like, I'm not spending no more money, so you out of it. So I'm like, all right, I'm gone. But back in 1994, there's a, I don't have a picture up here. Back in 1994, there was a rapper named Ahmad. And he came up with a song called Back in the Day. I don't know if some of y'all remember that song. Back in the day when I was young, I'm not a kid anymore. But y'all don't remember it. Okay, that's fine. But anyway, back in 94, I was 14 years old. And, and here he was reminiscing his childhood. And though he was grown, he wishes to be a kid again. And his lyrics are filled with several examples of his historical and cultural context. We're just going to look at a couple of examples from it. Here's the first example. He writes, he, he says, y'all remember way back when, when it was 1985 all the way live. I think I was 10. So here we have, there we go, a historical context where he is, is back in 1985. I don't know if y'all remember 85. I was about four or five years old. And if you put, it, it puts you in the framework of what was happening then. And he goes on and he says, one of those little happy kids singing the blues that be always trying to bag with the shag and the karate shoes, saying your mama black, his mama this, his mama that. And so here you get some cultural context. He mentions the shag hairstyle. I never, I don't think I ever had a shag, but I did have a Gumby. I did have a Gumby and I would rock that. I always wanted to get the karate shoes growing up because, because uh, uh, Kung Fu theater was really big and it was good to wear the, the, the Bruce Lee gear in the baggy pants with the karate shoes. And it seems corny now, but then it was the stuff. And he mentions the dozens. Talk about your mama and your mama this. But he mentions something that's very unique. He says, your mama black. And this is a culture within the African American culture community, context that deals with the issue of being darker skin is worse and lighter skin is better. Let's look at one more. He goes on and he says, I'm still back in the days, but now the year is 88, 80, 87, 88. I'm glad cause when JJ Fad hit supersonic, it was kind of a sport to wear biker shorts or to wear jeans and it would seem like the masses, girls had poison airbrushes on their pants. Dudes had on Nike suits and Puma with the fat laces. It was either that or K-Swiss. I don't know if y'all remember uh, JJ Fad, Supersonic. <laughs> you remember that Supersonic? I was real young, but I, I remember hearing that, right? So he gives a historical person, JJ Fad, an all girls rap group. And I remember going in elementary school and people would wear biker shorts to school, wearing airbrush. Airbrushes was, was the thing. You can't wear airbrush now, you look kind of corny. But then 
it was a thing to wear airbrush and poison because Babel DeVoe, I believe, came out a song called Poison and they would airbrush it on their clothes. The Nike suits, the Puma, with the fat laces. And there was a lot here. This historical and, and, and cultural context is from a perspective of an African-American man who grew up in South Central LA during the 80s. And why is this significant? And he mentions at the end of the song, he made it out. Because if you, if you didn't grow up African-American in the, in, in, in the culture in, in, in South Central LA, which I wasn't, I was raised and born and raised in Charleston, South Carolina in the 80s. I didn't know what it was to be like South Central in the 80s. You would understand his reason for saying, I made it out. What usually happens, instead of us researching the historical and cultural context, we tend to overlook it, running the risk of missing the greater meaning. And if the greater meaning was, though he was raised in a very bad part of town in the 80s, his, his childhood was amazing. It was great. He had fun. Or instead of seeing the historical context from Ahmad's perspective, it's ignored, only seen from our historical context and culture. We make it about us. The Bible is the same way. Let's talk about the Bible a little bit. The Bible is the same way. The Bible was written by 40 different people in three different countries, three different languages, a little bit of Aramaic, mainly Greek and Hebrew, some across different periods and cultures. Moses did not know Samuel. Samuel didn't know Joshua. But because of the vast richness of diversity of the history and culture and language of the Bible, it will overflow throughout your reading. It will overflow throughout your reading. The Bible was written for a specific people, cultures with different issues. The Bible was written without the intention of considering any Western civilization, thinking, history, or culture. Let me say that again. The Bible was written without any intention of considering any Western civilization and thinking, history, or culture. Western society does not have a, no a monopoly on Christianity. It never did. In my Doctrines of the Word class, we define inspiration, the definition of inspiration as the original manuscript of the Old and the New Testament are given by God, the Holy Spirit, in a way that makes, makes them free from error, but at the same time does not rule out personality and style of the individual chosen by God to write his word. So this means in God's infinite wisdom, he allows the personality and style of that individual to be expressed. That means the expression can, can be seen culturally and historically. But how important is it to study the historical and cultural context? Knowing the history and the cultural context debunks, it debunks thousands of theological errors, thousands of them. But here's the good part. It also strengthens your understanding of scripture. Throughout the power, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you will begin to see the vastness of the richness and the goodness of Jesus in scripture. Later, we're going to have some fun. We're going to have some, some crowd participation. We're going to have some fun. We're going to look at some scripture that are used in error 
and determine if the issue is a historical issue or a culture issue. And we're just gonna look at a few of them, but just be prepared. So one of the issues we're gonna look at is people prior to Adam and Eve, the prophecy of a transatlantic slave trade, Jesus, a third day contradiction, third day risen contradiction, and Lazarus raised on the fourth day. We'll come back to that a little bit later. But it seems a lot. It seems like learning this thing, it, 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 it's, it could be hard, but I'm here to tell you, you can be confident studying and learning and understanding the historical and cultural context. Now, I specifically uh, chose this scripture in Luke because it is saturated with historical and cultural reference that I want each of us to practice. This text, like many others, understanding the historical and cultural context allows the greatness of the forgiveness of sins, for us to see the greatness and the forgiveness of sins. So here are some things in the passage that are either historical or cultural, and some of these we're gonna look at today. I don't know if you can pull it up. I don't know if anybody can see it. I don't know if you really can see it from here, but I'm gonna go through them. So here we go. Here are some things in this passage that in order for you to understand the scripture, you need to understand the historical and cultural context. Here's the first one. Pharisee, eat with him. Recline at table, recline at the table. So I'm gonna do this one, reclining at the table. Anytime the Bible mentions reclining at a table, first of all, culturally, historically, Hebrews, the Israelites ate on the floor. They didn't eat in the chairs that like we saw in the Last Supper. Nobody ate, nobody's eating in chairs, they ate on the floor. And reclining at the table means it's a low table and they're leaning and their feet are pointed away from the table. Also, anytime you recline at a table, it's a banquet. It's a banquet. It's not a regular dinner, somebody come, come over my house and eat, it's a big thing. Okay? Women, women of the city who was a sinner, alabaster flask standing behind him at his feet feet hair of her head let's look at this so one reason why we know that this woman is a gentile is because historically and culturally jewish women had their heads covered any woman with loose hair would be would be seen as promiscuous so the only way this woman can wash could wipe Jesus' feet is that her hair had to be down. That's how we know this woman was a Gentile, being in debt. Denary, the amount, 500 to 50, touching him, for she is a sinner. Again, let's look at this one. Touching, uh, this woman touching Jesus, who is a rabbi, means that he would be unclean. So when this rabbi, so when this Pharisee says, why is this woman touching, why was Jesus allowing this woman to touch him? This deals with her, her being unclean and making Jesus unclean. Water for your feet, oil for a head, a friendly kiss. And the biggest one is forgiving of sins from Jesus. This goes beyond cultural and historical context. But spend some time looking through that this week and studying it. And there is a lot here, so how can we be confident when studying and understanding the historical context of scripture? 
And I'm gonna give you a couple of tips, just two tips for today, or two points if you wanna say, just two things. The first tip is this. First tip is this. Remember, the authors of scripture were historical. The authors of scripture were historical. Biblical history helps authenticate redemptive history. It makes it real. We can say, hey, this is true because historically it can be backed up. Studying the Bible involves learning, studying, and understanding historical and cultural context. Let's look at scripture. Pull up Luke 1 for me, please. Luke 1, 1 through 4, and it reads this. Insomuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word uh, of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to also, having followed all the things closely from the time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Okay, so one thing we learn about Luke, Luke was a physician, so he's very detailed, very meticulous, and he wrote Acts. So Acts was literally the volume two to, to Luke. So though it's here, historically, it was written in, in this time. Okay, it was written, which, where's Galatians? Is Galatians here? It was written during this time of Galatians. Okay, so even when you read the book of Acts, Luke mentions, we did this, we went here, we went, that's Luke. And so it was written like 62 AD, 30 years after Jesus ascended, and he's writing to Theophilus, who we believe is uh, most likely a Gentile who is a Christian, and he wants to get, did this stuff really happen? And again, Luke is very detailed. And what I love about it is this is historical because Luke says it. I am compiling a narrative from eyewitness accounts. People who actually saw Jesus do what he did. They saw him. They said, Luke, we saw this. And Luke was like, I saw it too. And he, he's not just writing, scribbling it down. What does he say? He's keeping an orderly account. These apostles, like people believe, that they didn't know what they were doing. No, they were very clear in what they were doing. Luke, I, I gotta keep an orderly account, I gotta keep it documented, I gotta make sure it's right, and I gotta follow it closely. Let's look at the second scripture, 2 Peter 1, 16. It reads, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, I'm sure we've all ran into this. The Bible is a myth. It never happened, right? But apparently, Peter and the apostle was saying, we know what a myth is. They know the difference between myth and, and history. They weren't dumb. And they said, hey, look, we're not making this up. We actually have eyewitness accounts of what God has made known. This is what it is. Let's look at um, Mark 10, 6 through 7. Look at that one. Mark 10, 6 through 7. It reads, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Okay, so here was a part of scripture where the Pharisees argued with Jesus about divorce. Okay, they were using historical sources to justify their argument to Jesus. But Jesus also used historical references to justify his argument and prove theirs were wrong. He goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. So what does this say? Why is it significant when it comes to history? Because Jesus and many others at the Pharisee believed that even the Old Testament was historical. They looked at it as history. Yes, the beginning of time. Jesus himself is using historical reference. They believe it's historical, Jesus. So this, is, this really happened. And Jesus is like, I know, but this also happened too. So I'm saying it because the Old Testament itself is historical. And many prophets, excuse me, many apostles, they mention the Old Testament. Paul uses, talks about the Old Testament and Galatians as something that is historical. So again, studying the Bible involves learning, studying and understanding the historical context. It will be hard to do it one without the other. So how do you do it? Here's a second tip, second point. Use reliable sources that reveals the historical and cultural context. The Bible doesn't give detail about the background information on history and culture within scriptures. You know, I mean, basically Luke is not saying, hey guys, I know you guys 2,000 years later in America will read this. So let me explain to you what it means when Jesus reclines at the table. So it is, they're not going to do that. We don't do that. We don't, when we talk and speak and write things, we, we're doing it in real time. We're not thinking about years later of what somebody might think and say. So they're not going to have it in the Bible. They're not going to give you as much detail as you want. It means we need to seek reliable sources to help us along when we read and study the Bible. Commentaries, historical commentaries, background commentaries. Here are some I have. Um, Ethan, can you do me a favor? Can you pass those around? We can pass those around. I want you to look at these things that I've collected over the, over the years that has helped me. You know, you, can somebody help them out? Just help pass these out, just to look at it. Um, just pass it around. So since it's more an application type of, of a sermon series, we want to be able to apply it, let you look at it. Now I need those back, so don't try to take it, okay? So just sort of pass them around. So these books that I have, these books that I have are a little bit more in depth because of my profession, right? But for some of us who just are getting started, Get a study Bible. Pastor Jacob mentioned an ESV study Bible last week. So get an get a ESV study Bible. They are very, very reliable. When I write my sermons, I use my ESV study Bible because they give me a lot of information. But eventually, you would have, you're going to have to go deeper. You're going to have to go deeper eventually. And you're going to need sources that you can trust. I would first talk to somebody. 
Speak to somebody. You can talk to me, but there are those who are been, who've been in ministry longer than me. You can talk to Pastor JP, Pastor, Pastor uh, John Mark, and other pastoral mentors, or anybody you know is really well-versed in scripture. Ask about the authors of these books. You don't want to get a commentary written by Oprah Winfrey. You don't want that. I'm sorry, you're not gonna wanna get it. I mean, I mean, don't get me wrong. We got some great, you, you know, we got some great people out there. But I don't wanna get a commentary from Will Smith. Now, if he's acting in a movie, okay, but if he's writing a commentary, I don't want that, okay? So be careful of the author, ask somebody. Compare sources. Is this source saying the same thing as this source? Or is one source way out of left field? Pastor, John, Pastor JP, John Mark, and others are willing to share resources, and you can even borrow some of these things. Some of these books are expensive. I collect these things over time. I'm not going to, I'm not going to Amazon and be like, let me get about 10 books. No, can't afford all that. Over time, people give you books, people get resources. Sometimes, some pastors retire, and they want to give up their resources, keep your ear to the ground. Go to the library. Talk to Anna. Man, I had to write a 15-page paper one time all on, on, on one of my classes, and all my resources came from the library. Got them all from the library. Didn't spend any money. All from the library. But I also had to know what resources to get. So I had to talk to Jerome and other people. Is, does this work? Is this good? And they helped me out. I went there, and even Jeff was helping me out with things. So there are people there who are willing to help and love you through this. Google and YouTube cannot be your resources. This is not enough. It cannot be. It might have some, but it's not enough. Come to worship, Bible study, learn from people, even audit a seminary class if you want. All those things are beneficial when gaining res reliable resources. But remember, you have to study the resources for yourself. You have to do it for yourself. I've been guilty of that. You've got to study it for yourself. And I don't want to be insensitive. Hear me out. I'm not trying to be insensitive to anybody. But don't be lazy. And make excuses. And again, I don't want to be insensitive. But look, we're all busy. We're all tired. We all got something to do. We're all struggling with something yet we make time for everything else. It's amazing that me, a 41-year-old man, will spend, will, will, will spend hours figuring out how to play a video game, but won't spend five minutes to read my Bible. It's amazing, but I'm always tired. I always got something to do, but I'm on that game, right? We all got something to do. How important is your relationship with the Lord? How important is others' relationship with the Lord? Let's go to some application. Let's, let's have some fun. Let, let, let's look at some, look at some Bible errors and, and determine whether or not if it's historical or cultural. And if it need, you know, that, that, that we can address. All right, y'all ready? So open your Bibles. It'll be up here too. Open your Bibles, turn to Genesis. 126 and hold your finger on Genesis 4:17. Okay, if you got your phone, 
do that. If you got your Bible, do that. All right, first book of the Bible, Genesis 1, 26 and 4, 17. As you read it, I'm going to uh, talk about it a little bit. So I've heard pastors teach this. I've heard people talk about it, that there were people prior to Adam and Eve. There was a civilization prior to Adam and Eve. I don't know if you ever heard of it before, but I have. Years ago, I don't know if y'all remember Benny Hinn, the televangelist. He had a special presentation on TBN talking about this. And I remember recording it and be like, oh snap, people before Adam and Eve, it has to be true. It's coming from Benny Hinn. That's what I thought, right? I remember even debating this with somebody at a Bible study who held this view. It's funny, but people believe it. Let's look at it. Let's look at Genesis uh, 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and, and, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of, of heaven, over the, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creep, creep, creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And if you look at Genesis 4, 17, Here's the one that really throws people off. Genesis 4, 17, it says, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name his son, Enoch. Now, some hold this view and see creation, the creation narrative of Genesis, as chronological and literal. So when they see a verse in Genesis 26, they assume that God created people and then later, he created Adam and Eve. It looks like that. But that's our Western thinking. We look at less and chronological, they think differently, right? Here we go. Even Genesis 4, 17. If Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel were the only ones on earth, then who did Cain marry? That, that, sort of, that sort of boggles your mind. It can, right? But again, it's not in chronological order. So let me ask you the question. Here we go. Raise your hand if you think this is a, a historical issue. Okay, raise your hand if you think it's a cultural issue. Okay, let's look at it. All right, those who get it right will, will receive a check afterwards. Okay, it will bounce, but at least you got something. Okay, it is a cultural issue. When Hebrews wrote poetically, okay, the story of creation is, uh, is poetically written. It's not a science book either, right? They would summarize first and then go into detail. Kind of cool, huh? So that's why when you read Genesis 1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then he goes into detail about on the first day he did this, on the second day he did this. That's how they wrote. So when people see, oh, see, see, God created people for Adam and Eve. No, the author being Hebrew, Moses, poetically, is summarizing what's happening. And then goes into detail. But what about Cain and Abel? What about Cain? Well, it's not chronological order. The author is letting you know what has happened to Cain. This has eventually happened as the earth populated. Cultural. Clear, it clears an era, right? And it gives you light to all of scripture. Let's go on. Now here's a tough one, right? Prophecy of the transatlantic trade. 
Deuteronomy 28. Go there, Deuteronomy 28. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 28. Prophecy of the transatlantic trade. Transatlantic slave trade, excuse me. So the, we all know historically, scripture has been used to justify slavery for centuries. And a lot, and of course, it's all wrong. It's not, it, it, it's used like that and it's wrong. And this is an example of what people believe. Deuteronomy 28, just go there and I'll tell you the verse later. It's a big chapter, but Deuteronomy 28. Let me go on, it says, uh, um, there is a religious group, I mentioned it before, called the Hebrew Israelites. They're here in Orangeburg, and they're known as a black religious identity culture. And for, again, for centuries, African-Americans have struggled with our identity, where we come from, and for years, whites and black Christians have struggled to, or refused or, to, or, to, or, or do not have the resource to address the cultural vacuums that are there. So these groups rise up, dangerous groups like Hebrew Israelites, and rise up, and they fill that vacuum with the belief that the Bible is about the, is about the African diaspora who are, who are actually of Hebraic origin. And God has exclusively only chosen them and rejected everyone else. And Deuteronomy 28 is one of their key verses that justify their faith. Let's look at it. Deuteronomy 28, 68. Deuteronomy 28, 68. It reads this. And the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt, a journey I promise that you should never make again. And there shall I offer you for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no buyer. So this is the most significant flaw with Hebrew Israelites is their lack of historical and cultural documentation and sources. Now, when you look at this, they see the word ships, slavery, being brought back to Egypt. And they believe the reference is a prophecy that, that, that connects to the transatlantic slave trade. Because the Hebrews were disobedient to God, they will be enslaved. Again, let's, I'm gonna ask you the question. Is this a historical issue or a cultural issue? Those who think it's historical, raise your hand. Okay, those who think it's cultural, raise your hand. Okay, so it's historical. This is a historical issue. So the Israelites were sold into slavery and those who could not be sold were taken to Egypt by ships in 135 AD. Centuries and centuries before the Atlantic slave trade. This has nothing to do with slavery. It had everything to do with the Israelites and what would happen to them in that time. But you have to find, yeah, but these things are found out again in other sources. Let's look at this next one. Jesus, third day contradiction. Luke 24. You don't, you don't have to turn it, it'll be up here. Luke 24, 6 through 7. I don't know if you guys have heard this before, but there are many people, especially those who are against Christianity, they question the third day resurrection of Jesus. Okay? If, and they say, if Jesus was raised on a third day, wouldn't that day be Monday? Now think about that. Three days later, he was put in the tomb, 
Friday, Saturday is a whole day, Sunday and Monday, well, what about Tuesday? It's a contradiction. Maybe Jesus really didn't rise. It, it doesn't make any sense. Luke 24, 6 through 7, it reads, He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful man and be crucified on the third, crucified and on the third day rise. Question, is this historical or is this a cultural issue? Those who think it's historical, raise your hand. Historical, no. Those who think it's cultural, raise your hand. Cultural, okay. What if I told you this was cultural and historical? It's both. So this is what I learned. Pull up this diagram I have. I don't know if anybody can see it. I don't know if anybody can see it here, right? So this is how historically and culturally the Israelites thought. They use Friday split into two days. It's first day, and half of it, starting at sundown, was the Sabbath. Friday all the way through Saturday was another day. And the third day was Sunday, Resurrection Day. That's how they looked at the days. So when people say, nah, man, it's a contradiction, it's historical and cultural that this is how the Hebrews looked at it. Kind of cool, huh? They split Friday into two days. Last one. We're going to get out of here. Last one. Lazarus raised on the fourth day. John 11. If you want to go there, you can. John 11. This is not about a biblical issue, but I thought this being a significant story, uh, we could look at it. It's pretty significant. All right? So John 11, 17. You can write it down and look up there. John eleven seventeen. 17, it says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Okay? So, question. Is this historical or cultural? Historical? Raise your hand. You don't know? Historical? Cultural? Raise your hand. Cultural? Okay. 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 Cultural? Okay. This is both historical and cultural, mostly cultural. Okay, so when you read scripture, anytime Jesus has raised somebody from the dead, J uh, Jairus' daughter or the widow's son, it is most likely within three days. Now, John specifically mentions four days. Okay, and, and John records Lazarus, a dead man buried, rotting on the fourth day. But why, what is so significant? Four days, we, we hear all kinds of numbers in the Bible. Three, seven, 12, four? It's kind of odd, right? Jews believed that between one and three days, a person's soul is still around. It's floating around them. But after the third day, the soul leaves. There's no chance of reviving that person. So that's why Mary and Martha were like, Jesus, he's in the tomb and it's been four days. She's letting, he's letting Jesus know, this is it. Ain't no coming back from that. But Jesus is also teaching Mary and Martha that in those in this passage that Jesus is the resurrection, that he has the power to bring back what, what, what we think is seemingly the place of no return. Kind of cool, huh?
Learning the historical and cultural context of these scriptures brings a different light and it, and it makes it makes the scripture a little bit more, more appreciated, if that makes sense. Let me finish with these two scriptures, 1 Timothy 2 and 15. 1 Timothy 2.15 and 3.16. 1 Timothy 2.15 reads, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And 2 Timothy 3.16 reads, All scripture is God-breathed, breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. As believers, we are called to not be ashamed and rightly handle the word of truth, especially those who are called to teach and preach. But the responsibility is you to yours too. You and it's both of our responsibility to handle God's word rightly. There are those who need Christ. There are those who are looking to see, hey, help me to understand God's word. And, and God's word, again, brings reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. But how can they see that if you're not studying your word? Someone's going to come to you and say, look, I'm struggling with this. Help me. You don't know everything. Of course not. I've been reading a book called Urban Apologetics. And the author says this in one of his chapters. He says, once the church gives sanctuary to lazy pseudo-scholarship, materialism, secularism, syncretism, and subjectivity, it loses its relevance and everything else falls apart. If we're not in God's word, it will, everything else will fall apart in the, in the life of the church and in your life too. You might struggle where to start. Talk to somebody. We are a church. We can help you. We can walk with you. If you ever read book, if you read a chapter in Acts 8, the Ethiopian and Philip are meeting and the Ethiopian is struggling to understand the book of Isaiah and Philip teaches him and tells him and he begins to have understanding. Spending time on your word, using techniques, using reliable sources, sitting with church members, getting help, going to growth groups and meeting with the pastor and other people. And, you can, and with this, you can be confident in studying and learning and understanding historical and cultural context. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you, Lord, that you have allowed the authors of your, of your word to keep their personality and, and their individual, Lord. That in your awesome wisdom that you, you, that you created history and culture and you, you put it in scripture for us to love you and understand you through it, Lord. We ask you, Lord, that we would definitely spend more time reading your word and, and, and praying, Lord, and, 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 and having your devotions than we do other things, Lord. Help us to love your word and to appreciate your word. In the name, Lord, we pray. Amen.